0: Welcome to the Australian Hiker Podcast, Australia's longest-running hiking podcast, downloaded over three-quarters of a million times in 150 countries and providing you with an Australian perspective on all things hiking. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage.
1: In today's episode, episode 231, we catch up with James McAloon to find out about his epic journey across Australia, in particular the completion of his COVID-interrupted trip across the last segment through the Tanami Desert. Before we get into today's episode, if you'd like to help support Australian Hiker and this podcast, there are a couple of ways that you can help us out. Firstly, by subscribing on your podcast host of choice, so that each episode is available as soon as it's published, and if you have the opportunity, leave us a five-star review. Another way to support us is go to the Australian Hiker website at www.australianhiker.com.au and click on the supporters page and buy us a coffee. You can do a one-off donation or become a monthly supporter. All donations are greatly appreciated and help us to continue producing this podcast and blog. Now let's get on to today's episode. A few months ago, I was contacted by adventurer James McAloon as he was just about to set off on the final leg of a unique adventure across Australia. This last segment of his journey would take him 1,745 kilometres from Alice Springs through to Broome, and included as part of that was a Tanami Desert crossing in the process. In today's episode, we talk with James about the larger trip, and in particular his last segment that for many people will be hard to grasp, let alone contemplate. James, thank you for taking your time to chat with Australian Hiker on this epic journey.
2: Yeah, thank you very much, Tim. It's a real pleasure to be talking to you today.
1: Now, before we discuss your trip, can you give us a bit of a brief introduction to yourself? I mean, a bit of general background and your involvement in the the hiking and outdoor industry.
2: Yeah, yeah, certainly. Well, my name is James McLoone. I currently live on the Sunshine Coast. Uh, That's where I was born and raised, farmed uh, until I was a teenager. And then I actually moved to North America. And then most of my adult life has been spent between North and South America, some particular time in Patagonia. But I moved back to the Sunshine Coast in Australia about six years ago. And I'd say probably my whole life, just being a farm kid, I was outside. But when I went to university, that's when I really got into hiking and rock climbing and and mountaineering, um, which then took me to South America and Patagonia. And since I've been back to Australia, I just haven't stopped. But the adventures seem to be getting bigger and bigger.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know what that's like. It's sort of uh, you start off doing a, an hour or a couple of hours and that keeps they just keep on getting bigger and bigger.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think um, it looks a little bigger so you try it and then you always say what's next. And every adventure just gets a, a little bit longer, a little bit bigger. So, uh, But that's that's the whole point of it.
1: So are you, are you working in the outdoor industry or this is more a hobby for you?
2: Uh, no, so I work for a Antarctic tourism company. So the ships that you take to visit Antarctica if you're not a scientist or an expeditionist are uh, based on the Sunshine Coast. So uh, I got into it just through my experience in South America. So that's my day job, uh, but I try and get outside as much as possible and, you know, a weekend warrior type of style.
1: All right, so let's get on to your Australian crossing and in particular the final section between Alice Springs and Broome where you crossed the Tanami Desert. This trip started as a cross-Australia adventure. How did that come about?
2: Yeah, definitely. Well, I think everyone can relate to their mind never stops coming up with ideas. And, uh, you know, I've been doing a lot of mountaineering and I was coming up with different endurance-based ideas and I remember writing down that one day, you know, if you get enough time, Uh, it'd be great to try and walk across Australia. And then a few months later, COVID hit. So (laughs) um, I I was furloughed from work, so I was put off work um, for about six months like a lot of people. And then at the same time, work was looking for a way to try and raise a lot of money to support the people we work with in South America. And I just suggested, well, I just have been given all the time in the world why don't I try and walk across Australia and immediately they said oh that's a great idea let's do it um so then I had to turn to my partner and uh, tell her <laughs> that I was leaving in a month because I'd forgotten to consult her but she was all for it and very supportive so got all the logistics and the planning and started straining uh training pretty quickly and then about two months later I departed and the idea was to walk from my home on the Sunshine Coast all the way to Perth which was the closest I guess city or, or western side of Australia to where I am.
1: I was going to say I mean one of the questions I was going to ask you is how did you find a, the time to undertake such a big trip but I, I by the sound of it you you had the time available and, uh, and, and those around you were supportive of it.
2: Yeah yeah certainly I think I mean, in my role, I get a lot of flexibility and my work is always encouraging us to do things outside of work, but to ask for three to four months off is quite a stretch. So, you know, in a lot of ways, COVID wasn't great, but the one thing it did afford me to do is uh, have a lot of time to do these long adventures like walking across Australia.
1: So let's talk about logistics now. Uh, Many long distance hikers love the planning aspect as much as the adventure itself. Are, Are you a logistics nerd?
2: Yes and no. I love the mapping. So I love looking at a map and figuring out what the route is. And and then from there, once you know the terrain and where you're walking and what the distances are, that's kind of where everything else falls into place. So you work out where your stops are, or resupplies, what gear you need, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I'm not – I'm really into mapping but um, and figuring things out, but I really strive not to get too detailed you know, and and I think one of the reasons is because there's a big difference between the reality versus the planning. Um, and if you get too tied into the tiny little gritty details, half of it's not relevant, and and maybe you're not preparing enough for what you do need. So, yes and no. Um, when it comes to looking at the maps and figuring out the routes, I'm I'm all for it. But uh, I don't I don't spend a lot of tiny detail trying to work out every every little thing that might or might not happen.
1: Now, if we go into the logistics side of things a bit more, because particularly when you're looking at a trip of um, uh, of many thousands of kilometres, there's certainly a, a fair amount of log- logistics involved. What was your resupply plan? Was it you were going to have uh, pick up food from town to town or uh, was someone going to meet you at, lo- at, uh, at locations along the way and, and give you your next batch of food?
2: Yeah, well, um, the original route was not so remote that I couldn't resupply. I was passing through a lot of towns um, and, and kind of following the road west, southwest until the Nullarbor, and that's when you'd get long distances between roadhouses. But yep. it was I could take the time off, but it was a lot harder to get other people to take the time off, and, and money's always a constraint, so – The best way I could figure of doing it was solo and, you know, self-supported. So what I did was just buy a, a, like a trolley, like one of those trolleys that you pull your kids behind a bike in. Yep. And I loaded all my gear into that and that allowed me to carry enough water and enough food to get between the towns, which sometimes would be maybe 200, 250 kilometers apart.
1: Now, you mentioned the trolley there, and that was a question I was going to ask you. Was it a a special one, or was it just one that that was uh, basically uh, part of a a standard biking set?
2: Yeah, on the first walk, it was just part of a standard biking set. And then on the part two, which we'll get on into a minute, we had to custom make one um, out of steel and stuff. And we took a lot of inspiration from the things that broke on the first
0: one. (laughs)
1: um and what about gear requirements i mean i think um um yeah if you're talking about the the area you are there i I mean i wouldn't expect you to be having to deal with snow conditions at all but uh, certainly the desert areas can get pretty cold at night time and you've also got the heat to deal with what what was your plan in relation to the gear you were carrying
2: yeah, well, we wanted to do it in winter because it was the coldest months of the year and that really helped in terms of the amount of water you needed, avoiding any kind of heat exposure and just issues with being in the outback in summertime. So I left on July 1st and I did, the trolley really helps with not needing to be so focused on ultra light materials, just because you're not having to carry it on your back. So we were able to carry a lot of water, enough food. I'd kind of calculate how much food I needed between stops, so the distance between resupply determined how much water and food I'd need. Even though it didn't snow, it did get really cold. There were a lot of days, particularly uh, the first three weeks, where it was below zero in the morning. So, okay. you, yeah, so you know, you're still tucked into your sleeping bag and you're wearing your big puffer jacket. Um, and then in the morning, you have to shake all the ice crystals off the tent and, and break apart the poles because they're frozen. But then during the day, it would get up to 15 to 20 degrees. So that that was perfect. So you'd just wear a lot of clothes to start with and then slowly strip down during the day. Um, and kind of my method to avoid that, because I was only walking about 10, 11 hours a day on average, I'd just wait till in my sleeping day till the sun came up yeah. and then I'd quickly, that's the coldest part, so I'd quickly get out and, and pack everything up and, and try and get walking as quickly as possible to get warm and then I would try and find a place to camp as the sun's going down. That way it's all set up and I, I can make my dinner and, and, and do what I need to do but then you know, be rugged up and, and ready to go to bed when I needed to.
1: So what you were talking about walking 10 to 11 hours a day. What was that based on? Was it more about that's what you were comfortable with or you were trying to do a certain amount of kilometres per day?
2: Yeah, I I was trying to do about an average of 40 kilometres a day. So the, the 10 to 11 hours really just came from my average walking pace. So at the start, because you're going over the Great Dividing Range, it is a lot slower, but when you – get quite trail fit and and you're on these long flat days you know you can average about five kilometers an hour so in the the second half i was actually doing nearly 50 kilometers a day just because i was very fit uh and it was quite flat and i was able to maintain a really strong pace um but i was hoping to achieve 40 kilometers a day i figured that was achievable and then that was, um, you calculate that out to determine how long you think the whole thing will take. Okay. so Yeah, and it's a lot easier to repeat when you're walking. You don't, have the, you don't have the impacting issues that you have with running. And when you're doing really long things, you end up going about as far. So walking for me was a better solution, particularly when you have to do it day after day after day after day.
1: So, um, did you? you, I was going to say, were you actually physically holding onto the uh, the trolley itself, or did you build a harness system to uh, just pull along as you were walking?
2: Um, I haven't actually told anybody this, but um, on the first day, I had a little bit of a system um, to connect me, and then um, the hill was quite steep, and the trolley pulled me well fell and then I was connected to the trolley and I had a big stack as well so from then on I disconnected myself from the trolley and kind of if it was a steeper hill I would try and zigzag down just because the sides of the wheels would really break you and at no point did it get out of hand but my solution was well I'd rather the gear crashed than me crash. So if it did get out of hand, then I could just try and direct the trolley, but ultimately, ultimately let it go. But fortunately, that didn't happen.
1: Okay. Now, when you're talking about walking across Australia, there's there's indigenous land and private property as well. Did you need to get permission from either landowners or from indigenous groups to cross particular areas of land, or did you manage to work your way around those?
2: Um, on the first walk, I didn't. I didn't need to. Um, and also, I, I really only went through one Indigenous community, Kaduga, which was on the border of Queensland and New South Wales. On the second walk, however, uh, it was a lot more prevalent. One, because COVID and Omicron had come, uh, come through the country again. yeah. But then, because ultimately we had to... Duvet north to Uluru to finish the first walk. The second walk actually took us through the Tanamai Desert to Broome. And that's one of the most remote places in the country. And the only kind of habitations are these Indigenous settlements. So, there was a lot more permitting when it came to accessing these places, Yeah, which for us, you know, if you're in a car, you don't need to stop at these places, you can just drive on through and then you don't need permits. But these were our resupply places because there's nowhere else to get water and food. So, we were trying really hard through the councils to get the right permits and I mean, on the ground, you're in the middle of nowhere, so I suppose you could get away with it, but we just wanted to follow the rules because they're, they're in, in place for a reason, are right? these? Indigenous people are more exposed to um, these kind of things um, like COVID and and have less access. But fortunately, the day before we set off, they, re- they permitted us to access. They re- released all the restrictions, so... We got really, really fortunate there because the process was taking quite a while and we weren't sure if we would get permission in the end, um, but it worked itself out.
1: Now, in relation to weather, you've already talked briefly about the weather. I mean, you, know, you, you, you picked the right time of the year in relation to the cooler cooler months, but um, even in the middle of summer, the deserts can get pretty cold. Were, did the weather plan, pan out to what you were expecting? Uh, or was it a a bit more extreme in some respects than what you were thinking of?
2: Uh, For the most part, it panned out what I was expecting. Uh, On the first walk, there was a section that didn't. Um, After Broken Hill, I was heading into South Australia, and the first day out of Broken Hill, the the landscape's like Mars. It looked like it never rained there ever, Um, and I thought I was coming into a real dry desert area. But maybe two days later, we got this freak freezing rain storm, you know it doesn't rain there very often, let alone in the winter, which is the dry season, yeah, but for three days straight, it rained nonstop, and it was only zero to five degrees and oh, it was God. windy and I would take minus forty over zero to five degrees and raining any day just because you you just get that cold rain and wind and it was it was the it was the worst part that I'd been through. But then once I crossed the Flinders and started heading north, it was sunny and warm the whole time. And on the second walk through the Tanami, the weather was exactly as I expected Um, and there weren't really any surprises.
1: So by the sound of it, your planning worked out reasonably well. There was nothing that that really threw you for a loop at all, was there? No, we got
2: quite lucky in terms of the – so for the weather, we were lucky. I mean – it turned out as, as we'd planned it and the weather was quite consistent. Um, but, you know, things happen all the time and weather's very unpredictable. So I'd say, you know, in some respects we were lucky. In terms of planning, it did work out quite as well as we thought. So what I mean by that is, you know, the, the carts, we did have some flat tyres, but we expected a lot more. For In terms of water, we we nailed that actually. Uh, which was surprising because there was one section on the Tanami that was 300 kilometres without a water resupply. And, you know, you're judging it based on how much you think you'll need each day. But if it's a hot day, you need more. Um, If it's a really hard day, you might need more. But when we arrived, we had about three litres left. So we we pretty much nailed (laughs) that on the head. The one area that we probably didn't calculate enough was the food and even though we could get water at a mine 300 k's in, we couldn't get any food. So that section of the Tanami from Yundamu to Balgo or Bil- Bilaluna was 550 kilometres. And just the amount of effort we were doing, we weren't eating enough food. I think we lost quite a lot of weight. <laughs> well, I lost quite a lot of weight to my partner that was with me, Um you know she started to get very irritable and, and show signs and we weren't sure what was going on but as soon as we resupplied we we had about half the distance but the same amount of food so we were eating twice as much and immediately we noticed a difference yeah um, so that was that was the biggest thing The other thing I think I didn't plan for was shoes so when you're walking on road running shoes are actually the best because they offer the flexibility and, and they're really, really good. But on the Tanamai, it allowed sand to get in and yeah. then that sand caused friction and I ended up with these just horrendous blisters. <laughs> so, um, so you know, at the end of the day, you wash it, you clean it, you bust it, you let it air, you bandage it and overnight it heals a little bit but then the next day you just smash it again and smash it again and I think it took about three weeks until they either healed or they hardened up into this solid callus.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's not surprising.
2: No, so, and you kind of just have to grit and bear it to be honest. You can't, you can't just stop because then you're just sitting around in the desert doing nothing.
1: I must admit, you know, just talking about the weight the weight loss issue, I know for me if I'm doing hikes of longer distances, uh, for each week I'm hiking I lose around about three to three and a half kilos of weight a week. And, that, and that's often, as you say, you, you, there's only – sometimes you just don't feel like eating even though you know you're supposed to be so it's a a hard one
2: no exactly and it's just hard to keep up even if we were eating um, as much as we wanted i don't think we'd keep up with the calories but because you know you only have a certain amount of weight and amount of uh, food that's available you still have to kind of roughly estimate what you're going to eat each day so that way you don't run out yeah and even still i've lost 11 kilos across the second walk so (laughs) you are working really hard i mean fortunately i had 11 kilos to lose so i was looking pretty good at the end but uh but it's not the six-week course that i'd recommend
1: no no for the first half your trip what were the highlights and the lowlights?
2: the highlight the main highlight i would say is the freedom i think we can all relate to that that but particularly at the time of covid and and politics and there was so much stress and noise just surrounding you in the city to be able to for a long period of time get away from the noise and i particularly don't mind time with myself so You know, you don't have any service in the outback. You don't have, you know, you can't catch up on the news or social media. You have a satellite phone or an EPIRB for emergencies, but you can't really use those unless you need them. So I think just getting away from the bubble and getting away from the noise and, and the only people you're interacting with are people that stop along the way or that you meet in communities and they're some of the nicest people you'll ever meet. So I think the two highlights were the freedom of getting away and getting outside and the people that I met along the way. Yeah. I think a lot of people think that you need to get away from people, but I found that the people I met out there in the outback, you know, they, they really have this strong sense of community and they're not afraid to talk to you and put aside what they're doing to help you out. And and it really kind of puts your faith back in humanity and makes you feel really good about, you know, being Australian or or, or being out there. Um, and. You yourself are a bit more vulnerable, so you're open to talking to people and and engaging with them. And and I don't think you get that as much when you're when you're in the city. So it's it's really something that I cherish.
1: Okay. What about what about the lowlights? What you know? What uh, what were things that you weren't thrilled about on that first section?
2: On the first walk, I would say. Bad bit of weather that I talked about before. That um, I was swearing quite a lot during that few days. I'd, I'd, on the first walk, I also had a lot of cart problems. The wheel broke, and then it was only a cart so it's hard to get a replacement. And yeah, the, uh, the and there were a couple of encounters that uh, you know weren't so pleasant. Uh, I wasn't in any danger. It's just you know I think you're hyper aware and of of, of your situation around you, and so. Yeah. There was one time where, you know, a, a group of wild horses ran up towards me and then stopped in the middle of the road and they were fighting with each other. But I had to walk around them. <laughs> you know, it's a it's a little scary. The sun's coming down, so it's not like I, I can stop. I need to get to my campsite. You know, there's another there's another section where. You know, a guy stopped and asked if I wanted a cup of coffee and, you know, you're always on edge and, you know, he seemed a little off but um, but he had a wife with him and it turns out he was, you know, I think just a little on the spectrum um, and socially awkward. But he was really, really lovely in the end. Um, you know, so you, you, your senses are a lot more alert and a lot more practical. But, um, yeah, all in all, it was a really good experience. On the second walk, I'd... We didn't have any issues at all, uh, really. It, it, And that's what I mean. Like, things can happen. Things do happen sometimes. But, I, you know, nothing really went wrong on the second walk. It was really, really
1: nice. Now, like many people doing adventures over the last few years, COVID has a, an impact on all of us. And, a, and, a, and in your case, it was in a much bigger way. So how did COVID impact your journey? And what changes did you have to make to your trip?
2: COVID allowed the journey. So in a lot of ways, that was great. But with COVID came a lot of restrictions and ever-changing border closed downs and and testing and everything. So it was really just timing and navigating. So on the first walk in the attempt to get to Perth, I got really lucky that the New South Wales border opened a couple of days before I got there. Um, But they were only allowing the one-way section that went 250 kilometres out of the way rather than the 40-minute section, not because you weren't allowed to go down there, just because they were trying to manage the border. So I had to kind of skip over the hump and <laughs> get that 40 k's because there's no way I'm going to walk 250 k's for no reason. I didn't break the rules or anything, but, uh, yeah, there was that section. But then when I got to South Australia, uh, like a day before I got there, Um, And I had to stop an extra day in Broken Hill to fix a wheel. So then it put me a day behind, which then the day I arrived into South Australia, they required quarantine. So (laughs) then I had to quarantine for two weeks. And then whilst I was in quarantine, WA closed its borders. (laughs) So, I'm, you know, I was sitting there devastated, thinking my trip is ruined. What am I going to do? You know, do I just walk to the border of WA and then, end it do I do I try and walk around in circles around South Australia to try and get the K's in but both of those didn't really feel like I was achieving what I'd hoped to but fortunately the Northern Territory border was open so then I decided stuff it I'll just walk north through the desert and then I'll finish at Uluru and for me you know being one of the symbols of Australia it felt like a finish line and it was almost the same amount of kilometres as walking to Perth. So that's what I did. So I pivoted. And when I got to Port Augusta, I turned north and then spent a month walking 1300K through the desert. And it really did feel like a finish line when I got there. My boss actually flew out for the end. We celebrated. It was a great time. We celebrated so much so that we missed our flight home. <laughs> and then, and then um, but when I got home, that's when it started to feel like, i haven't finished the walk and i want to want to get to the west coast so immediately your mind starts planning and going into it you start looking at the map you start figuring out where your resupplies are and i had it all worked out within a month of getting back but it took about a year and a half until i was able to get enough time to do it again
1: so the first half of the trip how long did that take you overall so that was from uh from the Gold Coast to uh, not necessarily a straight line by the sound of it, but the Gold Coast to Uluru?
2: No, so it was, well, yeah, I suppose so it went from the Sunshine Coast, Alexander yeah. Headlands specifically, down through the Darling Downs, kind of crossed through outback New South Wales to Port Augusta, and then from there I turned north and went all the way to Uluru. Um, and that was about 3,500 kilometres and took. I think it was 84 days, um, or 85 days of walking, because I fi- I finished at the end of September. So it took about three months. So I think my average pace was 44 k's an hour, uh, 44 kilometers a day,
1: on that's, that one. Yeah, that's that's pretty good.
2: Yeah, yeah. Like I said, like the 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 part from through South Australia was about 50 k's a day, but then the part, the first half was, you know, maybe 35 to 40. So it really evens out once you get fit.
1: Yeah. Okay, so now let's look at the final section of your hike. So Alice Springs to Broome, where you crossed the Tanami Desert. Was this section originally part of your planned trip or was this in response to the impact of COVID?
2: Yeah, so this was directly in response to the impact of having to change my route. So I wanted to start basically where I'd finished and then walk to the coast. And that way, you know, even though it was an extra thousand Ks, then I could say, okay, well, I've walked from one side to the other um, rather than starting at, at a random other place. So, and this time my partner, Emma, actually wanted to come with me, which, you know, it's always brings to mind, you know, different questions, um, but she trained, she planned, she, she did everything uh, to prepare, and we flew out to Uluru on the 2nd of June this year.
1: Now, this, this final section it was 1,745 kilometres, and it took you around six weeks, averaging 40 kilometres a day. Did you see these distances as a, as a challenge, or did you, did you just have trail legs by that stage?
2: Um, I think I learnt from the first walk, Um, the first walk was kind of, all right, let's just go for it. But I think what it taught me was um, it's not that long of a distance when you look at it on a day-to-day basis, and that's really the only way I'm able to look at it when you're actually doing it. So, you know, when I finished. The walk, you know, either of the walks, people say, oh, wow, fantastic. How does it feel walking 2,000 kilometres? And you're like, well, it's not. It's 40 kilometres. And then it's 40 kilometres tomorrow. And then it's 40 kilometres the next day. And that's very achievable. So that's kind of the mindset I got into and kind of how I perceive it now, you know, with, with the reality of understanding it is a long way and you have to do the proper planning. This section, though, it was half the distance. So it was 1,700 and... 50, uh, 54 k's I think or 45 k's, yep. um, but it was twice as hard and three times as remote. So <laughs> it's um is it there's a lot of other factors involved that weren't a part of the first walk. Just because um you know the first thousand k's is dirt and sand, um and it's extremely remote as opposed as opposed to the first walk was all on uh, roads and bitumen for the most part and much shorter distances.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now, we talked briefly about the carts before. So, you said on this one you actually had a purpose built one made. What was different about this cart for this section? Was it just more robust or did you make other changes as well?
2: Yeah, so a bit of both. So, my biggest concern was you know, on the first one, I just bought a trolley or a cart and it wasn't, the frame wasn't as strong as I'd like, particularly. You know, it could hold the weight, but then it has to hold the weight every single day for three months. Um, the wheels broke. Um, it couldn't carry, it only could carry 20 litres of water. Um, and so there were a lot of factors that I used to plan the, this, this next walk where it's a lot more remote. Really, there's only cattle stations and Indigenous communities out there it's, it's very, very rough terrain with corrugated sand roads um, and and just practical things like um, how difficult it is to get replacements. So so there was all those factors that went into it. So what we ended up doing was building, a well, customising a trolley um, that could hold a lot more water but then also hold them at the bottom so you have a lower centre of gravity so it's easy to control and push and um, using really robust wheels but making sure that they're normal bike wheels because if you need a replacement it's more likely that you'll find a, a random bike hanging around at in a community or something like that so you can fit it properly and things like building, building it out of steel which it's it's a lot heavier than say aluminium but everybody in the outback that works on a cattle station can weld steel so it's fixable,
1: yeah.
2: Um, even and and it's also really robust. So fortunately, nothing broke. But if it did break, it's either replaceable or fixable. So it's one of those practical realities. Rather than focusing so much on new technologies or or being lightweight, there's there's kind of other factors at play, and it allows you to have a plan B, plan C, plan D um, without needing to lug all these tools and extra equipment with you.
1: Yeah, it's 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 one of these things. I mean, I've seen various people use various types of carts and trolleys uh, doing trips around Australia and overseas, and uh, there there doesn't seem to be a standard thing. It's it's in a lot of cases, it's often something that people have done what you've done, where they've they've worked on what they think they need and what they you know what they may have actually used something similar in the past and then then put it together to see how it works. But it sounds like you you managed to get it all right and it worked well for you. Now, was it just one card or did you each have one?
2: Uh, so we each had one. So um, one, we, we needed, you know, a lot of food and water. So um, so we basically, our, our solution, and, and also I'm a big advocate of you're welcome to come along, but you have to be able to do it yourself. So that way, yeah. you know, I, if you're going to be a burden on other members of the team, it's, you probably can't come. So, I mean, the point is with, you know, a team works together and supports each other and everyone has hard days, bad days, strengths and weaknesses. But um, ultimately, you know, you have to be as prepared and and independent as possible. So, the So we essentially replicated the carts. We made two of the exact same one and we made the handles adjustable so that you could kind of fit it to size as well because I'm a little bit taller than my partner. And then we we replicated everything basically. So the the water, where well, she had up to 60 liters of water, I had up to 60 liters of water. We bought collectively the food, but then we split it evenly by weight. Um, we each had our own independent uh, kind of uh, swag tents. And I think this is more of I get quite smelly on long expeditions, so she wanted her own space. Yeah. Um, but but it worked out in terms of the weight of the cart and, and everything. And then there were a few couple of boxes of shared things, so solar and battery and stove and, and, and things so that you're not unnecessarily taking extra weight than you need to. But we just tried to split those up into two even boxes, and that way we – we had the same amount of weight, so yeah it was it was very similar. There were some areas where I had to take some extra weight and some areas where she had to take some extra weight just depending on how we were dealing with the day. but ultimately we, yeah we we tried to have a duplicate of of the system.
1: yeah no that's fair enough. so when did what what date did you start the second half of the trip? so when did you when did you leave Oru uh, with this section?
2: So we left on the 4th of June. That's well, so that was the first day of the walk. We'd arrived, I think, on the 2nd, uh, had a day at Uluru and, and a day to p- prepare and set up the trolleys and, and buy food and et cetera. But we actually set off on the 4th of June.
1: Okay. And again, you were planning on roughly the, the 40 kilometres per day uh, as, as to, to finish that section off?
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we, we, I, 'Cause we did I did so well on the first, I knew we could do about forty kilometres a day. So I planned on that as well this time. And the first stop was two hundred kilometres in at a roadhouse and I figured that was where we would that first five days was where we'd really shock our bodies into the into the journey. Because yeah. no matter, you know, no matter how much you train, you know, if you're working full time, there's no way you can prepare for ten hours of walking every single day so it was going to be a bit of a shock and then when we got to the first roadhouse we took a half day rest um or half to full day rest and um and kind of got any niggles out of the way so I had shin splints and so I was able to massage and stretch those out we were able to do some washing um and then and then after that we, our bodies were quite good actually they were used to the walk by then and and we could handle the longer distances and the rest of it without really any kind of issues how
1: did you how did your partner go i mean was she used to doing those sort of distances or is a bit of a shock to her
2: no she's she's not used to doing those distances and she did better than me which is quite annoying (laughs) (laughs) now that i think about it she um she, I mean, she had hard days as well, and I think she was a lot more affected by the food um, issues because she was leaner, so she didn't have any reserves. Um, but she didn't have shin splints. Um, she wore waterproof shoes, which seemed silly at first because we were in a desert, but it also stopped the sand from getting in, so she didn't have any blisters. She was able, even if she was having a hard day, she didn't stop walking you know she just kind of swore and got upset, but she kept on putting one foot in front of the other. Um so she really did well. She was really champion and um and you know an equal partner in all of this, I would say.
1: Now, one question people often ask us when we do like do some long distance hikes is how how did you go from a relationship perspective? I mean, yeah, you know, did you have some days where you just put a bit of distance between yourselves, or were you, or is it like anything? You have your good days and your bad days as a couple.
2: Yeah, a bit of both. I mean, we're quite we're quite even tempered, um, but I definitely think there were days when we'd walk about two hundred meters apart from each other, <laughs> just to you just give each other a bit of space. Like I was uh, when she was uh, struggling for quite a few days in a row emotionally I, I didn't know it was the food at the time we couldn't work out why and I was just tired of the complaining and um, so I got really quite frustrated and I'd walk you know 200 meters ahead of her and then just keep a distance for a while until I collected myself and then I'd try and be supportive and and you know um push her on but then there were some days that I was you know the grumpy gas or or something and and you know, she moved forward or she went back, and um, but for the most part, we didn't, you know, we didn't get into any arguments really. We didn't explode or, or want to give up. So, and that could have very much happened. So I think, you know, um, I've got a lot of faith in the strength of our team, and she's always keen to give something a go unless it involves cold weather. So, <laughs> um, she was, yeah, she was really good, um, and we came out quite strong i think yeah so ultimately a trip like this it it makes you or, or it really breaks you so luckily for us you know it made us and 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 the walk you know there's there's no fluff on a walk um and what i mean you know here when you're living on the coast and you you go about your day there's you know you put a lot of effort into you know niceties and and you know getting, you know, asking about the day and kind of arbitrary type stuff. But when you're out there, you know, it really is quite raw in a good way. Um, You know, you run out of things to talk about. So, you know, you listen to your podcast or your your music and you have little chats throughout the day. But um, there's not much fluff, particularly during long, hard walks. It's, It's quite straight to the point. But in a lot of ways, that makes things a lot better because you're not trying to figure out communication things or whatever. It's just, I think we should camp here. Okay, um, can you make the tent? I'll start getting food ready. Um, how are you feeling? You know, I think we need to move on. Um, oh, you're in pain? Okay, well, let's keep walking. You know, so <laughs> it's um it's quite to the point and, and you need that a lot of times, you um, and so for a relationship, that's, that can have a good or a bad impact.
1: Okay. In this last section, so uh, you went from uh, Uluru through to uh, Broome uh, and you crossed the Tanami Desert. I've, now, I've heard about the Tanami Desert, but I don't know much about it. So can you create a picture for us about what the, the environment was like and what was different about this than what you'd done previously?
2: Yeah, so it's one of the most remote and driest places in Australia. I think you think of the Great, the Simpson Desert or the Great Victoria Desert, which are huge deserts in themselves. But the the Tanami sits above the Great Victoria Desert, basically between uh, Alice Springs and Broome and, and the interior of where the Kimberleys would be, for example. So, you know, this opens up a lot more differences from the first walk where you're going through population centres so you know um, the plan was to basically use the track which cuts through the desert as a shortcut to the North Great Northern Highway which would take us across to Broome. Now this track over the years it's become a road but it's still unsealed so it's very sandy it's very corrugated and there's only four stops along the way. The first stop is at Tillmouth Wells, which is a roadhouse. That's 200 kilometres in. Another 100 kilometres further than that is an Indigenous community called Yundamu. And then from there to the next stop is 550 kilometres of Sandy Road, which doesn't get graded very often. <laughs> and there's a mine that's halfway in there where so a lot of road trains on the first half are going back and forth they just chew up the road and deteriorate it quite fast and then after the mine it gets better but it also doesn't get graded as much so you're really just dealing with a cleared track in a lot of places and from Luna it's another 400 kilometers to the next resupply stop so so it's quite raw, it's quite remote, and it's quite hard. But that's that's the exciting part about it. That's kind of why we wanted to do it. And and all that means is we needed to plan for it. So, you know, in terms of we took an ePerb and a sat phone, just in case of emergency. But ultimately, there was up to two and a half weeks where we were all by ourselves. Um, a few people stopped along the way and offered us some oranges or some water, but. It was just us and in the middle of nowhere nearly the whole time.
1: Well I was gonna say, I mean, when I've been in some areas in Western Australia before, there seems to be camels everywhere. Did you come across many many camels at all on, on the on the trip?
2: No, we saw lots of tracks and it was we were really hoping to see more wildlife, but I suppose being a desert, there just isn't as much as you'd think. There's um you know, we saw lots of birds, um, and every day we saw dingo tracks and camel tracks for probably the entire way. But I suppose, they were, you know, they might have been quite old, or maybe they moved at a certain times. So we only saw camels once. We saw dingoes, oh, I think three times. We heard them a fair few nights. They would howl back and forth. Yeah. Um, I woke up one night to dingoes trying to steal stuff out of our trolley, so you just had to flash them with the torch and, and yell at them, and if you do that long enough as they're scantering away, then they'll just leave you alone the rest of the night.
1: What about uh, what about snakes? Did you come across many snakes at all?
2: Yeah, yeah, I forgot about those. Um, I pro- on the first walk, I didn't come across a single snake, and on this walk, we I think there were six snakes that crossed our path. Three of them were really big um, tiger snakes. Um, and then there were three little ones that I didn't really see until I was almost walking on them. Um, we took, yeah, we took a snake kit just in case. Um, but the big snakes, they were either crossing the road way in front of us or they were sitting right in the middle of the road, just trying to, you know, bake in the sun because they need the warm weather. Um, so in, in both cases, you just give them distance and either if they're not moving, you just give them a wide berth, but if they're
1: moving, you just let them cross the road. So what were the highlights and the lowlights of this this second section?
2: The highlights were quite similar, except it was nice to have a companion. <laughs> so yeah. what I mean by that is uh, on the first walk, I was three months by myself, so it did take a fair bit of adjusting when I got back and maybe a little bit of noise shock or, or culture shock maybe. But on this walk... I had company, um, you know, someone to talk to and, and also it wasn't much of a shock to get out of um, being in a remote area because I wasn't by myself. You know, the highlights, I think the journey itself is just the highlight. Um, you know, there are. I, I really enjoy the kind of type two fun and then you just have moments along the way where, you know, you might talk to someone or... You know, we came across a tree that someone had carved into, but they'd carved in Novak, and that happened to be Emma's um, relative's name. So, you know, it's those cool tiny little things, you know, lighting a campfire, having millions of stars and lots of uh, shooting stars every night, and the landscape. There's so many highlights. In terms of lowlights, you know, to be honest, there weren't a lot. I think just little things that bother you maybe, you know the the tanami itself was was the highlight when we got onto the the highway there was a lot more traffic which was to expected but it also seemed like a lot of people were just too busy trying to get to their destination even if they were pulling big caravans to enjoy the great outdoors they were just you know so desperate to get to the next spot uh, so on the tanami everybody had time on their hands and they were happy to stop and Talk to you out of curiosity, or see if you needed water, and there wasn't didn't seem to be as much of a rush, and and a lot more happiness. So, um, I would say if I had to note a low light, it would be, you know, I wish that people would take more time to just enjoy the day rather than rather than trying desperately to to get to whatever is on their itinerary, um, because. It certainly affected us um, and made us, you know, almost disappointed for them in a lot of ways.
1: Now that the trip is over, how have you gone about reintegrating back into normal life again? I mean, you mentioned the first time being three months alone, it was a bit of a bit of a shock. Was it a bit easier on the second half of the trip?
2: Yeah, it was much easier. Um, in fact, we, we managed to... Shave four days off of that 40Ks a day. We, we did about 45Ks an average, which gave us about four days extra in Broome. Um, so we were able to really enjoy Broome, and Broome's <laughs> one of our favourite cities now. It just seems to have everything in such a small area. But, um, but yeah, it, it, it was really easy to reintegrate, and I think it was just because we met people along the way and we had company um, so that, that wasn't too hard. It, I found I was able to dive straight back into work. I, you know, a, a lot of way it kind of um, balances each other out. So, you know, I, I have quite a stressful job and I'm on a computer all the time. And now my mind's really clear and I'm away from a screen. And so, even though it was a really hard physical journey, it gave my mind a break. So then now I'm going back into the office where I'm not using my body, but I'm using my mind. And so I was able to adapt really well and they really complemented each other. I think my body needed a bit of a rest. And so I've I've found until recently, it's been very hard to get motivated to go, you know, go for a run or or go for a swim or do something. And I think it's just that kind of deep exhaustion that, when you finish your body is telling you no 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 you know take 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 a rest you you do what you need to to heal so you just you'd lose a bit of motivation and it takes a while to get back to wanting to be active
1: now what would you say to those keen long distance hikers considering doing such a big trip
2: my best advice i would say is you know, it's it's not a thousand kilometers. You know, it's twenty kilometers. You know, and then it's twenty kilometers tomorrow. It's twenty kilometers tomorrow. So don't let the scale of your project um, overwhelm you, because the reality, the day by day, is not the not the overarching uh, distance or difficulty. So, if if it's the scale of the project that's overwhelming you, just just the reality of breaking it down by day by day really can help um and and i think this was a hard thing that i had to learn uh, but now that i've learned it, it is just it really comes down to deciding to do it you know it's really easy to find excuses but you can go away for three months, you come back and you realise that nothing's changed. So, you know, there's, um, you know, you still have the same friends, you you might have the same job, it doesn't ruin your life back at home. So you, all of those reasons why you're telling yourself not to, uh, they're really just getting in the way. Then you're no longer thinking of reasons why you can't do it. You, you're actively planning and preparing because you are going to do it.
1: Now, one comment you've made both on the first half of the trip and the last half of the trip was the people. What were the the what were the communities like, or the townships like that you you passed along the way?
2: Yeah, well, the the second walk, the one through the Tanami, was I think where we were really exposed to remote communities, and it was amazing. It was wonderful, and it was so different from. I think, what we experience in the cities um, and what we're exposed to. So those communities out there, for example, they're so isolated that they all speak their own language still. They they speak English and they have access to the internet and, and um, there's a lot of programs going on now where they've got access to healthcare and stuff like that, but they are still very remote. So one of the th- things that that's done is they've been able to maintain their culture and their... And their language and so you get this really raw experience that you can't experience anywhere else and and I think being a walker you know you pay attention a little bit more and you have to immerse yourself in there but you also seem to get a lot more respect and um, openness from community members just because you know you are walking and one that's a bit weird and a bit impressive but I think that holds a, a bit of cultural respect as well so you know it was some of the happiest moments and happiest people we met you know and it was quite a, a stark contrast between the old and the new in terms of you know these very remote communities that still in a lot of ways live according to their own lifestyle but then you know they would ask to take selfies on their on their huawei smartphones so <laughs> if, you know or or, or or we would um buy big bottles of water and and fill up our own containers but then they would ask if they could have those bottles of water and you think oh it's just a bottle of water but you know they don't have the 60 dollars to spend in order to get the bottles so yeah so there was a little bit of exchange going on and they'd walk with us for a few k's and there were a couple of moments where uh, we got to meet some elders. So we we got to meet the elders of Balgo, which is one of the remote, most remote communities in the entire country. Um, and they were just on their way to watch a footy match, you know. So it was this... But then they stopped the car and we we stood in the middle of the road for an hour talking because there's no one else coming. So it was this really kind of pure experience that I think we're lucky to get because it's not something that really anyone else gets... Um, access to or, or really knows about.
1: Okay, now one final question. What's your next great adventure?
2: <laughs> Everyone always asks me or asks this after someone's done a big trip, um, but I've actually got an answer this time, um, and that answer is Antarctica. So I'm currently in the process with uh, with an expedition partner of mine, and we're planning an expedition to go from the sea or the coastline of Antarctica to the top of the tallest peak, Mount Vincent, which is about 1,200 kilometres. And we're going to do that in November next year. So we've called it Sea to Summit Antarctica, and this will be our kind of most ambitious project yet.
1: That'll be – that sounds like a great trip. Okay, so we've been talking with James McAloon about his track across Australia, and in particular about his Tanami Desert Crossing James, thanks for taking your time to talk to us.
2: Yeah, thanks so much, Tim. It was a real pleasure.
1: So that was our interview with James McAloon uh, on his epic journey across Australia, originally intended to be from uh, Sunshine Coast through to Broome, and because of COVID, ended up being sunshine coast to uluru and then coming back and doing uluru to broom i think for me i mean i've always got a trip of this sort of magnitude in mind at some stage in the future i don't i don't know when uh, so i find it's always interesting to to hear people that go through and do these things and i think from my perspective you know it's 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 something that very few people will ever attempt or try and do Uh, But even if you don't do it, it's always good to hear about. So talking to James, it it was certainly a logistical issue. And and I think him saying that they are averaging uh, on both segments of the trip roughly 40 to 44 kilometres per day uh, is pretty impressive.
0: That's a lot of kilometres, isn't it?
1: It is. And, And as you said, you're not carrying a pack on your back, but you are pushing a trolley. Uh, and yeah, you know, as long as the trolley's balanced, uh, and as long as it's uh, doing what it's supposed to be, you know, as the, if the conditions are good, yeah, you know, it shouldn't be too bad. But even having said that, it is still a lot of distance, day in, day out, to go through and do. One comment I would make here before we go too much further: the timing worked out really well. James contacted me uh, certainly earlier this year, just before he was starting his trip from Alice Springs to Broome. Uh, and we agreed to sort of touch base once he'd actually gone through and finished the trip. Uh, But it just so happened that if you get the Great Walks magazine, uh, he's right up an article, uh, and again, as we record this episode, it's September 2022. The current version of that magazine has an article on his second half of his trip from uh, El Uluru through Channamai Desert to Broome.
0: Yeah, and it adds a nice dimension to... Uh, what he told us uh, through the podcast
1: yeah so we do have some photos in the show notes of this podcast on the Australian Hiker website but certainly if you uh, are a, a fan of Great Walks magazine it's worthwhile having a look at that and getting a, a bit more of a, a picture detail uh, about what the trip was like I think from my perspective one of the things that really interested me I I am a, a, a an information nerd. I do like the the planning side of things just as much as the walking itself, uh, and can quite happily sit there for many months doing the planning aspect of it. Although James said that wasn't really his thing, uh, but I think yeah, it's it's interesting to see the logistical side of this: the carts that he was using, the gear that he was carrying, having to factor in water, uh, working out where where the route was going to be. If you're into planning, I don't think you can do too much better than doing, <laughs> no, doing a, a trip of this sort of magnitude.
0: That's, it's, it's epic, isn't it? I mean, there's just everything that you need you can't rely on. Now, as he said, the first
1: half of the trip, which was roughly around about 3,000 kilometres, he went through and did that solo over a, uh, an 84-day period, I think he was saying. Uh, and then the second half of the trip he did with his partner, uh, and that would make for two very different sort of trips. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't cope well with being by yourself for that length of time. And even even though the first half of his trip was through a bit more populated area of the country, you do end up spending a lot of time alone. Whereas on the second half of the trip, he has his partner with him. Uh, and if they want to have a chat, if they want to talk about something, there's somebody there to bounce ideas off. So it, it does make for a very different sort of trip, uh, and there are pluses and minuses on both sides of it. And as he said on the first trip, uh, he had the solitude to be able to pretty much think, uh, whereas in the second one he had someone to, to, as I said, bounce ideas off and talk to. So it's uh, you get something out of each type of those sort of trips.
0: Well, we did. he did not acknowledge that there were times when uh... – You know, things weren't kind of going so well and uh, probably uh, the nature of the country meant that, you know, they could still be in uh, eyesight of each other um, but not be next to each other.
1: Yeah, and I, th- I think, you know, it, it doesn't matter how well you get on. I mean, Jill and I do the same thing when we do our, our hikes. Our rule is we keep visual contact of, with each other and that might mean two or 300 metres or 400 metres depending on what the… If it's the, open. If it's open. But, you know, if, it means that we're there to help out if, if we need to uh, but it also gives us a bit of space because it doesn't matter how well we get on with each other, it's nice to have a bit of space and to get get inside your own head from time to time. Now, on the second half of the trip from Uluru through to Broome through the Tanami Desert, he was saying that it was it was actually a very much a different sort of trip because uh, he said this was probably some of the most remote uh, communities in Australia. Almost without exception, one of the themes that came through this interview was the people. Uh, he said, you know, until he got onto the highway in western Australia and and into the very last leg of the trip, he said people would just stop and have a chat. They 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 were willing to help out. They were willing to offer water or a coffee. Uh, and, you know, and, and he, as he said, leaving one of the Indigenous communities in Western Australia through the Tanami Desert. Uh, they were heading off to a football game uh, and they just pulled over the car and they just stopped in the middle of the road and had a talk for an hour. Uh, you know, nowhere else, I think, you know, if you, you're travelling through uh, more built up and more mainstream Australia, that sort of thing just doesn't happen. So I think it's it's good opportunity to talk to people, to really get engaged with people uh, that you're not likely to do in a lot of other parts of, of this country or, for that matter, a lot of parts of this world.
0: Yeah, and it's such a great opportunity to really get to understand uh, how others are living and the challenges that they have and the and the joys that they have.
1: So, from my perspective, as I said, I found this quite interesting. Uh, I, I, you know, it's it's the sort of thing that you're not bushwalking as such, although you are walking through bush. But there's also a lot of open ground as well. You are uh, you are pushing or pulling a trolley, depending on how you're you're structuring your trolley. And you know, it's it's the sort of thing that uh, you know it's different than the typical sort of hiking that we tend to do in most cases. But it's also a unique opportunity, and it's one of those lifetime experiences that you're never going to forget, uh, even if you never do something like that ever again. One of the questions I always tend to ask people, depending on the interviews, is what's the next big adventure? And and, and as James said, he hadn't had an answer for that previously, uh, but he is in the process of planning what he's calling Sea to Summit Antarctica Uh, and going from the ocean through to the peak of the highest mountain in in Antarctica, Uh, and that's in the planning stages at the moment. So that will certainly be a very interesting trip, and we will certainly keep in touch with James uh, as that progresses and goes ahead. So I think I'll leave it there. I think, as I said, from my perspective, this is a very unique trip, Uh, and while I may never do something as big as this, uh, it's certainly inspiring, it's certainly uh, helps to listen to people who on longer walks tend to have the same uh, issues and same problems. So, uh, in particular, they talked about uh, food uh, and and weight loss. Uh, and on doing long distance hikes, that can be a big issue. You, you know, everyone will often have a couple of kilos to lose here and there. Uh, but when you're doing trips over a couple of months or three or four months, you know, you weight loss is a big factor that you need to somehow work out how you're going to manage it. So we hope you've enjoyed this epic adventure uh, and listening to James' story about his trip across the Australian continent. Uh, I know we did. Uh, so, as I said, have a look at the uh, the written article in Great Walks magazine uh, and have a look at the images in the show notes of this podcast on the Australian Hiker website for a bit more visual information. Okay, that's all for me. Bye for now.
0: And bye from me.